0: What amazing special music this morning. Uh, thanks to all who uh, have worked so hard and prepared so diligently to, uh, to be used of God this morning. Uh, as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we already looked at uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. We already looked at the visit of the wise man to Jesus, so my big question was, where to go for Christmas? And God led me to Luke chapter 2, to a very well-known but often misunderstood account of the birth of Christ. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And as is our custom, please stand with me. I love it when we stand because in the Bible, in Nehemiah, when, when, we op- when they opened up God's book, the people stood. Now they also fell down on their faces and worshipped, but we don't have room for that right now. Um, but this well-known narrative might not be as well-known as you might think. Especially when you see it for what it really is and what it really says. And what I'm hoping is that it will cause you to rethink Christmas and some of your assumptions about it. We're going to read Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 20. Luke chapter 2 starting at verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds, staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you great news, good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying God and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be sensitive to this story, that we would not be hardened by hearing it so many times that we think we know everything that it means I pray lord that you would open our eyes once again That we would see wonderful things in your word and we pray in jesus name. Amen You know, it's really possible to read that story And go yeah, yeah, yeah I know that i've heard it a hundred times Christmas is a dangerous holiday And it's not because you might get trampled looking for that coveted gift or after Christmas bargain. Not because some people don't want to say the words Merry Christmas. Not because unbelieving people want to secularize Christmas and take Jesus out of it. That's the least of our worries. It is to be expected in a culture that is opposed to Jesus Christ and who he is. Christmas is dangerous because there is a crisis involved. Remember when I was a kid, the only crisis at Christmas for me was, am I going to get that gift I want? Which I was actually too, too shy to say that I wanted, so my parents just had to be mind readers. That was really the only crisis for me at Christmas. Now, the issues get more complicated as you get older, but the crisis of Christmas is not, you know, will there be enough money to buy all the gifts, or will, will I be able to pay off all the debt I incurred? Or how will I face that difficult relative at the annual Christmas gathering? The crisis of Christmas is a crisis of faith. A crisis of belief. Will I believe God? Will I believe His Word? Will I believe what He has said and stake my entire life upon it? That's the crisis of Christmas. The story begins with Christ's birth in Bethlehem. Verse 1. Chapter 2 of Luke. Caesar Augustus had ordered a census. that Everybody was supposed to be counted. It was counting for the sake of military enrollment and taxes. It was Roman oppression at its, at its best. Caesar Augustus. Augustus meant exalted one. He was worshipped as a god by the people. He had supreme military power. What he said... Went And he said count and they counted In verse 2 we hear that it was in the days that Quirinius was governor of Syria Which has caused a lot of scholars problems because it looks like he was governor twice Um, Most scholars put the birth of Jesus roughly around uh, 6 B.C. to 4 A.D. About a 10 year swing there Uh, Late summer, early fall, not winter Uh, I prefer a uh, B.C. date myself but whatever the case, in verse 3, we read that everybody was going to their hometown. Everyone was going to where their uh, ancestors came from, where their relatives were from. And so, Joseph, we see in verse 4, took Mary, who was engaged to him. That's not an uncommon occurrence, an engaged couple going to the hometown of the groom-to-be. Problem was, she was pregnant, pregnant. Uh, Showing a lot, about to pop. Um, God had a plan. There was a plan that God had, and it was perfectly timed. But humanly speaking, it created a whole bunch of problems, a whole lot of problems. It wasn't wrapped in a neat little bow. It, It definitely wasn't what the establishment was looking for. Now, first, the first thing you see in terms of a problem here is that there was no wedding for this favored one. Luke records uh, the, God's birth announcement to Mary. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. It starts that in the sixth month. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. You've heard this one a lot of times. To a virgin engaged to a, a man whose name was Joseph. Of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Mary. And, and coming into the place, here's what the angel Gabriel said to Mary, greetings favored one, favored in the sight of God, the Lord is with you. Now she was really wondering about what was going on here and she kept pondering the kind of uh, greeting this was and the angel said, Mary, you have found favor with God and you're going to have a baby and it's going to be of the Holy Spirit and you're going to name him Jesus. Jesus. So that's what happened. Now the scripture had foretold that this was going to happen, right? Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. and They will call his name Emmanuel, which translated in Hebrew means God is with us. God was going to come down in the form of a, of a, of a little baby. A wild thought, right? It seems uh, incomprehensible, seems un- impossible. But the things that are impossible with man are possible with God. So... But the problem was there was, no, there was no wedding feast. You know, here's Mary and Joseph hitting town, and they see this, you know, Mary's stomach is different than it was before. And, and they're, they're gonna, they're, the first thing they're going to think is, you know, I don't remember getting invited to a wedding feast. I don't remember going to a celebration. See, betrothal was usually entered into one year before marriage. It was a legally binding agreement. It was, uh, had the same accountability as marriage. In those days, it was part one. In that year, the, the, the lady would live with her parents. Part two took place when the man would take the, the woman home to his home. But not before a wedding feast. Not before pretty much a, day, a multi-day celebration could stretch over a whole week with friends and family celebrating with the couple their joy. Huge occasion. You Remember Jesus going to the wedding in Cana of Galilee? Well, see, there had been no such wedding feast for Mary. In Matthew chapter one, we read that Mary was engaged to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit that the Scriptures had foretold in Isaiah. The virgin birth, highly unlikely and and uh, and uh, questioned humanly speaking, perfectly fine in God's sight. The virgin birth had been full. Uh, been predetermined in god's perfect plan christ entered the world in such a way as to support his being fully god sinless perfect without sin not tainted with with no sin nature no propensity to sin but to the casual observer this was a scandal the community had expectations of joseph he was to end the marriage part two shouldn't happen In a culture that valued honor, he would be required or expected to look for a more faithful wife. You know, even during Jesus' ministry, there were innuendos about, about his alleged illegitimate birth. In John 8, they said to him, where's your father? Where's your father? We weren't born of fornication, insinuating that he was. You know, things aren't always as they look on the surface, are they? The events surrounding the birth of Jesus were God-honoring. They were miraculous. They were supernatural. God was pleased with Joseph and Mary. But there had been no wedding feast, and so there was a problem. The second thing is there was no room for a humble king that was being born. Now, you've seen the same Christmas movies as me, Mary and Joseph arrive in town late on the night that Jesus was born, knocking on the door of the only inn in town and being uh, turned away by the innkeeper who has a somewhat puzzled look and sad look on his face. I'm sorry, but there's no room. Look at verse 6. Luke 2, 6 says, while they were there, key there, that's a key, while they were there, they were already there in town. We don't know how long they were there. could have been a day. could have been a week. But it wasn't the case of them showing up the night Jesus was born, late at night, looking for a motel, right? Now, there was no room, though, for them. Look at verse 7. Okay, she's ready to have a baby. And she gave birth to this baby, her firstborn son. There were others Later. But she wrapped him in cloths in those days. They would put them in swaddling clothes. They'd wrap them up tight so their spine and their limbs would, would grow the right way. At least they thought it was so cozy and warm. It was like a little baby bundled up. And that's what she did. And laid him in a manger, a feed trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I've always pictured an English country tavern. I don't know, for some reason... Little, you know, countryside inn type thing. But Doug Greenwald points out some interesting things about inns in those days. The Greek word for inn was a uh, pandoxion. It was a round hedgerow, basically. It was uh, about four feet tall, between 40 and 60 feet in diameter, basically, a circular walled space open to the sky, an enclosure. That was an inn, and no self-respecting Jew would take his wife there, much less a pregnant about to have a baby wife. Um, it was a common shared area, it, there was no privacy, and, um, but the interesting thing is in verse seven, that's not, the, that's not the word that's used. See, the word that's used is kataluma, kataluma, which is the word for guest room, guest room. Uh, Jews were expected to give hospitality to strangers and to travelers in those days. Many Judean families, the the poorest, the humblest among them, lived in one-room homes. One-room house, a a true family room. You had a family room at your house? This was their house. Um, And a devout Jewish man was forbidden to sleep in the same room as another man's wife, And so what families would do is they would partition off one end of the room, uh, effectually making a guest area, kataluma, guest room. And um, in those days, now you remember that Joseph was part of David's clan who lived in Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem in those days was a town of about 2,000 people. Roughly, uh, probably about 300 small homes, if you do the math of how many kids you might have and what have you. Uh, 300 small homes, each containing a kataluma, a a little guest area, a little guest room. Now you think about it, Mary and Joseph hit town, and and their need is evident. (laughs) And so was the reason no one would let them in their house. See, the first person that probably met him said, you didn't have a wedding feast? You consummated the marriage before Four, you had your, your wedding, and any self-respecting Jew would not create an unclean situation for themselves by bringing them into their home. Can't do it. Sorry. Doors closed. And it, it looks like at least one family, though, would have let them in. Because this word is used, this, this guest room word is used. It, it seems that at least one family had, had some mercy and let them in. But when the time came to deliver, there wasn't any room in that little partitioned off part of the house. And so, they moved to the stable. Now, I always picture going out to the barn, right? You go out to the barn. It's not what it was. In those days, it was more like a split-label house. If you're from the Midwest, you understand what I'm saying? Split level. There's split levels in in orange, too. You know, go down and go up. It it was like a split level house in those days. Uh, Most of the time, underneath the house, the one room house, was an area about four and a half feet tall, sometimes carved out of the side of a hill, sometimes just an indentation in the ground that they would use to give their animals shelter in cold nights. uh, Stable. And in that place would be a place you'd put feed in for a for the animals, is that where, that's where Jesus was put, in a, a feed trough. And uh, you didn't like my, my accent, did you, when I said split level? You didn't, you know, that was a Tennessee accent. Okay. Um, but it was like a basement of sorts, all right? A dark, windowless area, about four and a half feet tall, that would give animals protection at night. You think about the humility of the birth of Jesus, how striking it was. How without fanfare it was. No suits, no beautiful choirs, no pretty lights and trees and what have you. Not, uh, just simplicity, quietness, a lack of air, lack of pageantry, extreme simplicity, a shroud of shame, humanly speaking, but also, from God's perspective, extreme glory. Extreme glory. See, Christ's birth was announced to shepherds by angels. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, in the same region, right nearby, in the hills, there were shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. Watching their, uh, their, their, their sheep. Um, in those days, they were close to Jerusalem, and, and they would use a lot of these for the temple sacrifices. And they're out there day and night, year-round. The shepherds were considered unclean because they couldn't observe the, the temple uh, sacrifices on an on a ongoing basis because they were out in the fields day and night, year-round, watching their flocks, so that people could get a, uh, a lamb to sacrifice. So they were considered unclean and looked down upon And they were just minding their own business, out doing their job. Blue-collar workers just doing their thing, watching over their flocks at night when all of a sudden an angel of God shows up. We don't even know what what this is talking about, do we? We We've never dealt with that. And an angel shows up. It wasn't a normal occurrence. And it it spooked them. They They were scared. So the angel had to calm them down. Look at verse 10. Don't be afraid. They were afraid. Of course they were afraid. They're in the presence of the angel of God. Don't be afraid. I'm bringing you good news of great joy, which is all for all people. Wow. All people. Even them. First to them. These despised common laborers. they were listening to the angel's message. They learned of something new that God had done, that he was doing. They were getting news from God that no one else got. Angels were sent by God, messengers, to announce the news that God had become a man in the person of Jesus Christ, to do what no one else could do, to save his chosen people from their sins. Now, it's comforting to know that when God chose to do his thing on earth through Jesus, he didn't choose like we choose. He didn't choose on the basis of looks, or status, or intellect, or any other tape measure we use to Determine other people's worth. We didn't, he didn't choose on the basis of credentials. I think it's significant that God chose the lowly and he chose the humble. And he chose not to go through the power structures of the world at the time, but to give his message to those who were willing and able to hear it. The news was for them and for all the people But for them, them as well. In verse 11, we read this part of the message. For today, it happened today. In the city of David, Bethlehem, has been born for you. It's personal. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. We've heard those words so many times. We don't even think about what they mean. A Savior. This is one of only two times in the Gospels that the word Savior is used for Jesus. In John chapter 4, verse 42, the men of Sychar called him the Savior of the world. We throw the name around as if it's just so common. Twice in the Gospels. Uh, Christ, in Greek, Christos, it it means anointed one. It's the the exact same, uh, it's the equal to the Hebrew title, Messiah. Lord is the Greek word for master. But it also is used to translate the covenant name of God. God's name, given to a helpless baby, given to a baby born in very humble circumstances. One writer put it this way, God contracted in a span, immeasurably made man. He had come to save them. He had come to do the Messiah thing. He was the anointed one who is the lord of all the heavens and the earth. J.I. Packer said, the divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises. Needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. And the more powerful God looks. Verse 2, verse 11, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 11 says that a Savior has been born for you. In verse 12, the angel says a sign will be given to you. Here's your sign. It's a simple one. You're going to find a baby wrapped up in the cloths, lying in a manger. Look for the manger. Look for the feed trough. Then the shepherd's got a real show. Verse 13, the angels were praising God for his greatness, praising God for his goodness, praising God for who he is, this huge army of of angels, telling God how awesome he is and how great he is for doing what he has done and sending Jesus. Then there's the visit. Verse 15, angels uh, tell him that the baby is going to be in a feed trough and they're like, "Let's go." Short road trip. They're going to go right away. And in verse 16, we read, "They went in a hurry. They were anxious, they were excited. They were uh, intent upon getting to the place they were going. They wanted to find they're on this little scavenger hunt, basically. little scavenger hunt. And they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby found their way, it doesn't mean, oh, by the way, they just happened to, they, 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 they rolled into Bethlehem, and they saw the little light, you know. Uh, it, you know, that's with all the pictures show us, right? It basically means they searched for them until they found them. They looked and looked until they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the feed trough. They were seeking for Jesus. And they looked for him intently through the town of Bethlehem until they found him. In verse seventeen, when they had seen this, what they see, they saw God incarnate. They saw a little baby who had been born to save them. Pretty unlikely, huh? Pretty kind of unbelievable if you think about it. You go visit a baby when they're born in the hospital or at the people's house, and do you really think much about how great this baby might become one day? You know, maybe you think, oh, maybe this baby will become the president of the United States. Well, see, they go and they see this, this little baby and it's like, wow, this baby is the Savior of the world. Now, we look at it from this side of the, the picture, or this side of the coin, and we're like, oh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, right. We're talking Bethlehem, a little town. We're talking, by the way, Bethlehem means house of bread, house of bread, Jesus, bread of life, bread of life, but It's just so unlikely. But what do they do? They go tell other people. They tell others. It says they they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. They probably told Joseph and Mary and anyone else that was around. And as they left, anybody else that wanted to hear? They told anyone and everyone they could about the news. And in verse 18, we read that all who heard it marveled. This is a common occurrence. If If you study the Gospel of Luke, People marvel at, at Jesus. We kind of yawn. People marvel. They were blown away. They, it was amazing. Beyond their wildest expectations. But well, look what Mary did. Mary was silent. Verse 19. But Mary treasured all these things in her heart. Pondered them means she thought deeply of the significant reality of what had happened and and uh, and what god does and how he does what he does thought deeply of the significant realities of god in christ what the shepherds do they took off but as they went look at verse 20 they glorified and praised god for all that they had heard and seen Just it had been told them. Now, so much can be said about this story. So much has been said about it. And I just want to make three observations. Three simple observations about the significance of this account. And the first thing is this. That we need to understand as we come to this story that humbly following and trusting God's plan will often mean being misunderstood. Those who doubted Mary and Joseph's story, those who didn't believe them, or the shepherds, didn't believe God. A crisis of faith. Go with me to John chapter 15. Jesus before he died on the cross, is up with, his, up with his disciples in the upper room. They've washed the feet. They've been comforted by his words. And then he starts talking about being the vine and them the branches, about how they can't do anything apart from him and all that. And then in John 15, he gets to verse 18. And if he hadn't said enough shocking words to them, By this time, this would be the corker. He said this, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Can we expect any, any, any better? We do, right? Now, misunderstanding comes with the territory. Persecution comes with the territory. Mistreatment comes with the territory. Deal with it. It's part of the life. It's tough, though, isn't it? If you've ever lived with the reality of shame, you know how it feels to be married. Embarrassment of what it meant to be Joseph. Lowers every sense of self-worth you might be feeling. Makes you aware of your great need for Jesus. Works against God's spirit that frees you, It attacks you. And if you stay in shame rather than walking in the freedom that you have in Christ, you live like a slave and not like a son or a daughter. See if they hated Jesus. And one of the ways to get through this is to do what Mary did. To think deeply of spiritual realities, significant things of how God does things. Allow God's word to get inside your soul and clean house. The silence of Mary is significant. When we remain silent, we allow God's Spirit to work on our hearts do his work in us, simply by showing up. Nothing to prove, nothing even to say. My first inclination is to defend myself. Lash out. When we're sure of the truth, it is still difficult to rest in the fact that God is in control. But it's the best thing. Mary, in the midst of the shame and the glory of the situation, treasured it all. Kept it right in there. Pondered it deeply. Thought about it. Rolled it over in her mind. Now, if shame came from your own doing rather than misunderstanding or mistreatment for this cause of Christ, remember this. The great exchange is that Christ, in His work on the cross, in dying for the sins of the world, He makes the exchange of your shame For his righteousness. So. I want us to think about this idea of being misunderstood as part of the territory. Following Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus. Be ready for that. Now the second observation I want to make is that. We must also see the necessity of following the Savior. As Christ and Lord. Verse 11 was that message that said, today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ. The anointed one. The Messiah. The Lord. Master. God. Acknowledging and knowing Jesus as Lord. Doesn't merely mean, if you say Jesus is Lord. You know, it's one of my favorite little sayings. I don't live it, but I love to say it. I want to live it but if you say Jesus is Lord it doesn't merely mean that Jesus rules but that he rules in your heart and soul and life that you make decisions based upon his overriding will that you make decisions based upon his reality in your life and his presence I like the way Brendan Manning put it in his book the relentless tenderness of Jesus he said this Speaking of Jesus being Lord. What rules in me is the kingdom of people. Of events. Petty plans and personal interests. They stifle Jesus Christ. Crowd him out of my life. What shape would Christmas take if Jesus really ruled in me? If he did. That is if my faith were deep, burning, powerful and passionate. My life would be very different. My self esteem would be, cease to be based upon the value of were of the world's possessions and prestige and status and privilege, and the group's solidarities of family, race, class, religion, and nation. To make these my supreme values is to have nothing in common with Jesus. With burning faith, I would speak of Jesus, not as some distant being, but as a close friend with whom I have a personal relationship. The invisible world would become more real than the visible. The world of what I believe more real than the world of what I see. Christ more real than myself. Christmas would become more than a breathless finale to a frantic shopping season. More than sentimental music, tinsel on a tree, a pageant, and goodwill toward the world. Yes, life would be radically different if Jesus Christ ruled in me. The crisis of Christmas is a crisis of faith. Our lives must be different if we call ourselves followers of Jesus. Because to be a Christian, it's to stake one's life completely on the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. But see, many don't want to face Jesus unless he's in a manger. A helpless baby, you can control. As long as he stays in a manger, they can make him into whatever they want him to be. Somebody who wants to be their buddy. Their bro. Their pal who exists to make them happy. Someone who winks at sin and would never let someone go to hell. Someone who condones anything and everything and never disagrees with your lifestyle. Basically, someone who really isn't what the Bible says he is. It's a Jesus of their own making. That's not my Jesus. People want a Jesus who will help them in trouble but won't mess with the darker corners of their life. That's pop culture Jesus. That's Hollywood Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. You've got to get to the point where you see Jesus as he truly is. Get beyond baby Jesus to grown-up Jesus. Not the helpless, but the Lord of all. Lord of all creation. The one who came to save. The one who came to set apart and to glorify his chosen ones to reflect his glory. He is powerful. He is sovereign. He is in control. He's Lord. We've got to see and follow Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. The last observation I'll make is this, about the birth of Jesus, is that it highlights the joy of living in active obedience to God. The Mary and Joseph obeyed, went with God's plan, didn't didn't, uh, go against it. The shepherds obeyed. How so? Well, look at verse 12. The angel says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in the manger. It implies obedience. It implies that they will go at the angel's suggestion and direction to Bethlehem. Angels gave them the info and the sign. You will find it implied that they needed to go and see. That's what they did. And they experienced great joy. See, following Jesus as Lord means you, you, you trust, you believe, and then you obey. You, you, you stake your life upon it. You, you don't just say, yeah, I believe that, but you live that because you believe it. If you don't live it, then you really probably don't believe it. Many people follow Jesus only as far as Bethlehem. See, as long as he stays baby Jesus, we still think we're in charge. We can still call the shots. It's grown-up Jesus that gives us problems. The grown-up Jesus knows too much. The grown-up Jesus, well, take the baby Jesus for a minute. The baby Jesus, he steals your heart, right? Oh, so cute, so cuddly. Grown-up Jesus wants your heart. He sees right through you. And the bottom line is this. You're either going to stumble and fall over grown-up Jesus, or you're going to kneel and bow before his throne. Jesus is first and foremost God, worthy of our worship, worthy of our obedience. And there's this painful process that God takes us through if we're willing. The process of reforming our hearts and our minds. The process of, of breaking our addiction to the world. See, we are addicted to the world and its, its way of doing things. Ever since God led me to faith in Christ, and God led me to faith in Christ, Yeah, I got to the point, humanly speaking, where I said, wow, I want to follow Jesus and nothing more than that. I want to follow Jesus. I want him to be in charge of my life. I don't want to try anymore to do it on my own. But God led me to that point and from that time, I've been going through withdrawals. I've been going through withdrawals for the last 26 years of my life. What kind of withdrawals? The fact that God is reforming, and he's doing this in every Christian's life, reforming us more into the image of Christ through the painful process of teaching us how to die to self and live to God. But it comes in the midst of the yearning and the seeking for things of the world. I want to lose myself in selfish pursuits when God wants me to buffet my body and make it my slave. I want to just do my thing when God wants me to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The pull of the antichrist way of doing things is like a magnet. Ways of being and doing that ignore Jesus. It's, it's, the whole thing about this is it's being in the world but not of it. At times we get sucked in and we're just fully immersed. At other times we overcompensate and isolate. But God wants us to redemptively interact with our culture, with, with the people that we're to interact with, and our purpose isn't to be immersed in it, but to live and share the gospel in, the, in our homes, in the church, and out in the community. The crisis of Christmas is a crisis of faith. Plain and simple. But Mary had no such crisis. See, when she got that news that she was going to be the, the, the mommy of the Savior of the world, she said in Luke one thirty eight, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. What God wants to hear from us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you. We say, Lord, help our unbelief, is what we say. And we thank you, Lord, that there is mercy for those who pray that prayer because the manger points to the cross. And we thank you, Jesus, that you came to earth for a purpose, that you came into the world to save sinners, among whom we feel like we're the biggest losers. But we thank you, Lord, that you give mercy. That Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.